0: Working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly.
2: And I'm Cynthia Roberts.
0: In today's feature report, Indiana environmental reporter Enrique Sands has a story about pollution monitor shutdowns that covers shutting down pollution monitors due to budget cuts. But first,
2: today's environmental stories. Star reports that chasing lightning bugs on a summer night is a rite of passage for many young Indiana residents. You know how it goes, pursuing the flickering lights across the dusk sky until you clap your hands in a sphere around one and then waiting to catch a glimpse of the small flash between your fingers before letting it go. In fact, Indiana's insect is a lightning bug. In 2018, after years of campaigning by Hoosier elementary students, the Indiana legislature and Governor Eric Holcomb proclaimed the Say's Firefly as the state's bug. Not only is this species of Firefly native to Indiana, It is also named after a Hoosier who discovered it, Thomas Say. There are about 40 species of what are called Lampyridae, or light-emitting beetles, in Indiana. North America is home to as many as 170 different species, and there are more than 1,900 types worldwide. And they've been around for millions of years. But the flashy beetle and the pastime of catching them That once was so commonplace might become a thing of the past. There are several reasons why fireflies are at risk, and all are equally troublesome. An issue that plagues many struggling species is loss of habitat. Fireflies do well in areas with some moisture and humidity. They often live near ponds, streams, marshes, rivers, and lakes, or in the margins where these areas meet fields and forests. However, as the climate continues to change and we have more drought-like conditions, the ecosystems and conditions where they survive are shrinking. Furthermore, the Indiana legislature has reduced the protected wetlands by hundreds of thousands of acres in the last few years. The legislation was proposed by three legislators who owned construction companies seeking cheap land.
0: The Republic in Columbus, Indiana, reports that developers of a proposed solar energy farm in northeastern Bartholomew County are pledging to incorporate what would be the largest pollinator garden in the county, providing vital habitat for butterflies and bees, which are essential for food and vegetation. The proposed Swallowtail Solar Farm, which developers Aravon Energy Incorporated and Tanaska want to build on agricultural land leased from owners in clay and flat rock townships, would generate 200 megawatts of clean, renewable energy, enough to power more than 30,000 homes. The companies said they also plan to include up to 10 acres of native pollinator-specific plants located within the project area. Quote, we always work to maximize the community and environmental benefits of our projects. At Swallowtail Solar Farm, we can create important wildlife habitat and improve soil health while generating clean electricity and economic growth, end Zat Sawicki, Senior Project Development Manager for Aravon, said in a news release announcing the plan. Quote, we're excited by the prospect of making the largest pollinator garden in Bartholomew County a key part of our solar farm, end quote, he said. The pollinator garden is in addition to native perennial ground cover that developers have pledged to grow beneath the expanses of solar panels. The company said they worked with members of the Columbus Pollinator Committee to ensure plans would work with community goals, including making Columbus the first Bee City USA affiliate in Indiana.
2: Wish TV reports that electric companies will keep a close eye on how much power is going across the grid. As extreme weather events continue to increase in frequency, a growing need exists to prepare the electric grid for a volatile future. Quote, especially right now during the extreme heat, all eyes are on the power grid. End quote, said Kelly Young, a spokesperson for AES Indiana, formerly known as Indianapolis Power and Light. AES is updating much of its older equipment, and the company expects to spend more than a billion dollars modernizing the grid, equipment, and hardware. To ensure the money is being well spent and that customers are not freezing in the winter or without air conditioning in the summer, AES Indiana has joined forces with the Electric Power Research Institute to examine the needs of the electrical grid in Indianapolis through a program called Climate Ready. Young said as the climate shifts and extreme weather shifts in frequency and intensity, society is becoming more dependent on an even greater need for a resilient and reliable electric grid. Another important aspect of the grid is to consider that the eastern grid consists of everything east of the Rocky Mountains, except for Texas, which has its own grid. More redundancies need to be added to reduce vulnerability from attacks abroad and to be able to draw power from other states For example, the project of connecting with wind power from Kansas needs to be completed. Thus, if the wind is not blowing in Indiana, power from Kansas could fill the need.
0: Glyphosate, the active ingredient in Bayer-Monsanto's carcinogenic weed killer Roundup, is closer than ever to being banned. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals voided EPA's interim regulation review decision approving the continued use of glyphosate. The court said, quote, EPA did not adequately consider whether glyphosate causes cancer and shirked its duties under the Endangered Species Act, end quote. Then the Supreme Court refused to consider a bare petition to save the company from being held accountable to the hundreds of thousands of people diagnosed with cancer after using glyphosate-containing herbicides. The Ninth Circuit Court held that EPA unlawfully concluded that glyphosate doesn't pose a cancer risk, Despite overwhelming evidence and high-profile lawsuits against Bayer, with jury verdicts against the company in the tens of millions of dollars, EPA came to, quote, no conclusion, end quote, on glyphosate's connection to the blood cancer non-Hodgkin lymphoma. The agency didn't assess how much glyphosate enters a user's bloodstream after skin contact with it, a major route of exposure for the chemical. In sum, the court noted that EPA's inconsistent reasoning made its decision on cancer arbitrary and struck it down. Other evidence is mounting against glyphosate. Research shows the chemical disrupts bumblebee production, has negative effects on the gut microbiome, and increases greenhouse gas emissions, oxidative stress, DNA damage, body burdens, threats to endangered species, and more. As Beyond Pesticides said, quote, if EPA is to convince citizens that it is worthy of the job entrusted to it and not captured by the pesticide industry, in particular Bayer Monsanto, it must do a thorough review of all the evidence that finds glyphosate to be carcinogenic, End quote.
2: Indy Star reports that for the first time in a long time, the future of rooftop solar in Indiana is now more uncertain than ever. Solar power is about to become much more expensive for Hoosiers as a state policy meant to help boost the renewable energy in the state expired on July 1st. Once that deadline passed, Indiana utility customers are no longer allowed to participate in what is called net metering when they install solar panels on their roofs. Without that policy, consumer advocates worry what this will mean for the future of solar and residents' ability to access it. Quote. If I could use one word, I would say uncertain, end quote, said Kerwin Olson, Executive Director of Consumer Advocacy Group Citizens Action Coalition. The rate that customers will receive for the excess energy they generate will differ for each utility. But regardless of provider, it will be a dramatically lower rate compared to what early adopters received, often around three or four cents compared to the retail rate of around 15 cents.
0: Energetic grassroots resistance in the Pacific Northwest has defeated dozens of new large-scale fossil fuel projects in Oregon and Washington. In the last 10 years, about 55 coal, oil, and natural gas projects have been proposed for Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia. A recent study by the Seattle-based Sightline Institute noted that over 70% of them have gone down the tubes. Emily Moore, a senior researcher at Sightline, said, quote, We could be looking at a really different picture right now if all of those had gone through, end quote. She went on to say, quote, it's hard to underestimate the climate devastation those projects would have had, end quote. The fossil fuel industry targeted the Pacific Northwest because it's located between the huge reserves of fossil fuels in the interior of North America and fast-growing Asian markets. Of the 55 proposed projects, 40 ended up canceled, Six were finished, and nine more are under construction or being considered. If all the projects had reached completion, the Pacific Northwest would have spewed over two billion metric tons of carbon dioxide each year. That's approximately the equivalent of 30% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions.
2: The Descendants Project, an organization that advocates for descendants of enslaved people, took U.S. Representative Raul Grijalva, Democrat of Arizona, on a tour of river parishes that environmental racism has long imperiled. Representative Grijalva, chair of the House Committee on Natural Resources, visited communities and cultural landmarks under threat from industrialization and heard from local leaders working to combat environmental injustice. Representative Grijalva spent Juneteenth weekend in the area at the invitation of Joe and Joy Banner, co-founders of the Descendants Project. The visit was part of a nationwide community input process for the Environmental Justice for All Act. Introduced in the House by Grijalva and Representatives Donald McEachin, Democrat of Virginia, and Tammy Duckworth, Democrat of Illinois, the legislation is an attempt to remedy the kinds of injustice prevalent in Louisiana's Cancer Alley, an area on the Mississippi River between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, where numerous factories endanger the health of the largely Black population. To commemorate Juneteenth, Representative Grijalva attended a land blessing in Wallace, Louisiana, honoring enslaved people buried on the site of a proposed grain terminal. The ceremony was hosted by the Descendants Project, which is challenging an illegal decades-old zoning ordinance in an effort to prevent construction of the terminal, which poses a grave danger to both the health of the residents and the bodies of their ancestors. The land blessing underscored the fact that environmental racism threatens to deprive Black and Indigenous communities of not only their futures, but also their
0: histories. A worldwide movement is growing to stop proposed East Africa Crude Oil Pipeline, or ECOP, a project of the huge French oil company Total Energies and other transnational corporations, ECOP would carry 200,000 barrels of oil a day from western Uganda to export terminals almost 1,500 kilometers away on the Tanzanian coast. The pipeline would displace about 100,000 people who live along its route. It would slice through more than 200 rivers in the basin of Lake Victoria, which 40 million people depend on for irrigation and drinking water. It would disturb protected areas in Uganda and Tanzania, including national parks and wildlife reserves. However, it's the pipeline's destruction of the climate that's made halting it a top priority for climate activists not only in Africa, but also on the other continents. The pipeline would emit 34 million tons of carbon into the air every year. The main locations of the opposition to ECOP are the communities along its path. However, because the transnational corporations involved in building, operating, and funding the pipeline are based in Africa, Europe, Asia, and North America, the Global North and the Global South are up in arms about the project. As Nick Engelfried, writing in Waging Nonviolence, observed, quote, The campaign to stop ECOP therefore represents an almost unprecedented opportunity to build a truly worldwide movement focused on opposing a giant oil pipeline, end quote. The Pacific
2: nations of Palau, Fiji, and Samoa recently announced support for a moratorium on deep-sea mining. Palau launched the new Alliance of Countries Supporting a Deep-Sea Mining Moratorium at an official side event at the United Nations Ocean Conference in Lisbon, Portugal. As of last year, an intergovernmental loophole called the Two-Year Rule gave the world two years to fight for a global moratorium on commercial deep-sea mining. This development offers a rare opportunity to fight back against an industry that wants to destroy the ocean floor by mining to extract minerals for use in batteries for electric vehicles, tech products, and weapons of war. Palau, Fiji, and Samoa are not only on the front line of the potential impacts of deep sea mining, but are leaders in ocean stewardship. This early signal from the Pacific nations could serve as a powerful precedent for other Pacific countries, including the United States, to join in the calls for a global moratorium. Chile recently announced a proposal for a 15-year moratorium. The Biden administration can support a ban on deep-sea mining and join the worldwide calls for a global moratorium on this future extractive industry, which would add extra pressure on the oceans. The next meeting of the International Seabed Authority, the regulatory body governing deep sea mining, is only weeks away. So the Biden administration needs to act now.
0: Recently, activists blocked the entrance to the International Monetary Fund's Paris office and demanded that leaders of wealthy countries attending the G7 summit in Germany cancel the debts of poorer and less industrialized nations called the Global South. Some of the activists glued their hands to the office doors. Others sat down with their arms locked inside tubes to make it harder to move them. The Paris protest was part of a Debt for Climate global campaign. Whereas countries in the Global South emit small amounts of climate-killing greenhouse gases and therefore contribute least to the climate crisis, they suffer the most from the consequences. Debt cancellation would give those countries the resources to fight against the climate crisis. The group displayed a banner reading, G7 Responsible, IMF Guilty, in front of the building, and some activists distributed phony banknotes marked with the slogan, Stop Fossil Fuels. The organizations sponsoring the action were Extinction Rebellion, Attack France, and Youth for Climate France. Meanwhile, in London, members of Extinction Rebellion sat down in Parliament's central lobby with a banner that said, G7 Pay Your Climate Debt. In a tweet, the group called for cancellation of the Global South debt. In 2020 to 2021, the Global South spent as much as $3.4 trillion on external debt, funds that Extinction Rebellion said should be spent on green energy transition.
2: The New York Times reports that within days, the conservative majority on the Supreme Court has handed down a decision that will severely limit the federal government's authority to reduce carbon dioxide from power plants pollution that is dangerously heating the planet. But that's only a start. The case, West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency, is the product of a coordinated multi-year strategy by Republican attorneys general, conservative legal activists, and their funders, several with ties to the oil and coal industries, to use the judicial system to rewrite environmental law, weakening the executive branch's ability to tackle global warming. Coming up through the federal courts are more climate cases, some featuring novel legal arguments, each carefully selected for its potential to block the government's ability to regulate industries and businesses that produce greenhouse gases. The pattern is repeated in other climate cases filed by the Republican Attorneys General and now advancing through the lower courts. The plaintiffs are supported by the same network of conservative donors who helped former President Donald J. Trump place more than 200 federal judges, many now in a position to rule on the climate cases in the coming year. At least two of the cases feature an unusual approach that demonstrates the aggressive nature of the legal campaign. In those suits, the plaintiffs are challenging regulations or policies that don't yet exist. They want to preempt efforts by President Biden to deliver on his promise to pivot the country away from fossil fuels, while at the same time aiming to prevent a future president from trying anything similar.
0: The New York Times reports the Biden administration is throwing out the definition of habitat for endangered animals, returning to an understanding that existed before the government under President Donald J. Trump shrank the areas that could be protected for animals under threat of extinction. The Trump administration narrowed the definition of habitat, limiting federal protection to only places that can sustain an endangered species, as opposed to a more broad historical habitat where the animal could someday live or dwell. The Trump administration's rule was at odds with the conservation purposes of the Endangered Species Act of 1973, wildlife officials say. Quote, For some species that are on the brink of extinction due to habitat loss or climate change, and there's literally not a lot of habitat left, we need every tool in the toolbox to be able to protect the remaining habitats that could be suitable, end quote, said Bridget Fahey, Division Chief for Conservation and Classification at the Fish and Wildlife Service. In today's feature
2: report, Indiana environmental reporter Enrique Sines has a story about pollution monitor shutdowns that covers shutting down pollution monitors due to budget cuts.
1: We're thankful for the the $100 million that Congress awarded to EPA through the American Rescue Plan, $50 million for enhanced air quality monitoring, $50 million for environmental justice projects. And in this budget of 2023, we're also asking for or requesting a $100 million increase to develop and implement community air quality monitoring notifications.
3: EPA Administrator Michael Reagan is asking for some serious money to improve the country's air monitoring systems. It's a big ask, especially when Congress has for decades been unwilling to open up its wallet for the EPA. And why would they? It's only the agency responsible for ensuring that the air we breathe and the water we drink are clean enough to not kill us. But why is the agency asking for $100 million when an air monitoring program already exists? This is what Reagan told Congress.
1: We've looked at our air quality monitoring system in this country. Um, It's antiquated. Uh, It's not uh, technologically up to speed in a way that we believe is most protective of of our communities. So we've mapped it out. We know where we need more monitors. As a matter of fact, I've been meeting with the states. I just met with 45 of the 50 state secretaries this past Monday. In these states, we know where we lack adequate air quality monitoring, and we're gonna continue to identify those areas and put those monitors in those places first.
3: But the EPA's quest for air monitor modernization has claimed some budgetary casualties. A pair of air pollution sensors right here in Indiana, and the nation's long-term environmental monitoring could suffer as a result. The EPA plans to suspend operations for 41 air quality and atmospheric deposition monitoring sites throughout the country, including two located in Indianapolis and Roush Lake in Huntington County, as part of an effort to reduce costs for its 2023 budget. The EPA confirmed that the sites which provide air quality data on ozone, nitrogen, ammonia, sulfur, and other pollutants in rural and ecologically sensitive areas will be suspended in the upcoming fiscal year due to, quote, fiscal constraints. The EPA requested $11.9 billion for its yearly budget, about 9% of which will be allocated to improve air quality, including the $100 million mentioned before. Accounting for inflation, the EPA has experienced a downward trend in its buying power since 2000. Despite budgeting more money for the agency, the EPA has less buying power than it did during the Trump administration, necessitating cuts in some agency programs like the two sensor sites in Indiana. The sensor sites collect information on ammonia gas concentrations for the Ammonia Monitoring Network, a part of the National Atmospheric Deposition Program. The EPA has said the data collected by the NADP and its own long-term monitoring networks are the cornerstone for tracking the extent to which emissions reductions are having their intended effects on improving human and ecosystem health. Ammonia is the most prevalent base gas in the atmosphere, but it is also released from agricultural and industrial sources, emissions from vehicles, and the loss of nitrogen gas from soils, vegetation, and oceans. The largest source of ammonia pollution in the country comes from the agricultural sector, primarily from animal waste and commercial fertilizer application. Indiana's Ammonia Network sensors detected yearly spikes in ammonia levels in May and June between 2013 and 2022, right at the tail of the soybean and corn planting season. Excess ammonia can negatively affect waterways through acidification, where ecosystems become more acidic, and eutrophication, the excess enrichment of aquatic ecosystems by phosphorus and nitrogen nutrients that can lead to oxygen loss or the production of algae. Ammonia also mixes with other gases in the air to form particulate matter pollution, pollution so small that it can enter the human bloodstream. Particulate matter pollution can cause cardiovascular effects like cardiac arrhythmias and heart attacks and respiratory effects like asthma attacks and bronchitis. Exposure to the smallest forms of fine particulate matter has been linked with an increased risk of COVID-19 death in the U.S. The suspension of the sites will create a hole in the information network that could affect the EPA's ability to warn the state to prepare for ammonia effects. NADP coordinator David Gay said the suspension of the two monitoring sites will result in no ammonia monitoring for the entire northern half of Indiana. He said if this continues, then the trend determinations will not be complete nor will the site be used in annual average data products and any research using this data won't be complete. Modeling scenarios for current and future time periods will not have this data and result in less than ideal modeling. The Indiana Department of Environmental Management said it has not used data from the Washington Park or Roush Lake sites for its air programs, so the suspension will not affect IDEM's ability to evaluate particulate matter levels. The NADP will still have one active AMON sensor in Vincennes. The EPA will continue to operate two Clean Air Status and Trends Network sensor sites, which monitor pollutant concentrations, atmospheric deposition, and ecological effects due to changes in air pollutant emissions.
0: For EcoReport, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Here at EcoReport, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in south-central Indiana. All levels of experience in all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org.
2: And now for some upcoming events. Bloomington Parks and Recreation will have a hike on Saturday, July 9th from noon to 2 p.m. at the Sherwood Oaks Park on How to Be a Good Neighbor. Learn fun facts about honeybees and other pollinators while hiking through Sherwood Oaks and Goat Farm Parks. Bring drinking water and meat in the shelter. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks.
0: An Explore Lake Monroe paddling trip in the North Fork of Salt Creek is scheduled for Sunday, July 10th from 7 to 9 p.m. You must have prior paddling experience. Bring your own canoe or kayak and explore the quieter side of Monroe Lake. Experience beautiful views, hidden wildlife, and much more. Sign up at bit.ly slash exploremonroe-jul10-2022.
2: Take the Discovery Trail Hike at Brown County State Park on Monday, July 11th from 2 to 2 45 p.m. The Park Naturalist will take you on this half-mile hike where you will learn about flora, Fauna, Pioneer History, and Geology of Brown County State Park.
0: Learn about eco-invaders at the Payntown State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Thursday, July 14th from 6 to 7:30 p.m. Meet at the campground and watch for the naturalist who will be walking around telling you about some of the invasive species found in this area and learn about the impact they have on our ecosystem.
2: Spring Mill State Park is hosting a full buck moon hike on Friday, July 15th from 10 to 1130 p.m. Meet Anthony at the Donaldson Cave parking lot for an adventurous hike under the full buck moon. Learn all about full moon lore and history. This will be a rugged two-mile hike.
0: Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar. A Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems, MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com.
2: This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Enrique Science gave us the Indiana Environmental Report. Juliana Daly assembled the script, and Linda Green, Don Gera, and C- Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Patrick Callanan produced and audio edited today's show.
0: For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly.
2: And I'm Cynthia Roberts.
0: And this is ECO Report.